<laughs> Thanks, Judy. <clears throat> um, and thank you for inviting me to speak. And um, it's great. This is my home meeting. This is the first room I ever walked into in OA many years ago. And um, I've been coming back for a long, long time. And great to see all of you here on this Saturday. Um, I think I'll start by just qualifying a little bit and then um, talking about Tradition 8. And uh, I had some confusion for many years, I think, about Tradition 8. So it's actually an awesome opportunity to get to talk about it and how it sort of intersects with my own program and sort of what I've learned about Tradition 8 over the years of being in program. Um, it does not look like we have any newcomers. So hopefully um, you all get something out of this. And if not, there'll be a new speaker next week um, for more fellowship. So um, just a little bit of my backstory. I was um, a fearful and anxious human, like right from the beginning. Um, in real contrast to say my sister, I'm one of two kids, but um, my mom has stories even as a little baby about how reactive and different I was than my sister. And so that um, feels like something that has been part of my story um, right from the get-go. Um, and in my family of origin, uh, my parents sort of, I would say, grew up in the shadow of the Holocaust. Their parents, my grandparents, um, survived and got out of Europe. Um, but several of my grandparents' siblings on each side died in the Holocaust. And that obviously had a tremendous impact on my parents growing up and I think on their parenting style. Uh, my dad was a scientist um, and a true non-believer. Um, and so he was a hard scientist and uh, did not sort of have a spiritual practice for much of his life. And that was not sort of part of my upbringing. And my mom, um, both my, I love both my parents who are still alive and feel their love um, still constantly every day. My mom, I think, was an overprotective mother in a lot of ways. And I see that now with my own kids uh, as when she's grandparenting them. Um, but just like when when I was a kid and when my, um, you know, whenever there was trouble, whenever there was difficulty for me to endure, it needed to be ameliorated right away. So it was, and she was the one, um, she was the one who could comfort me and make me feel better. Nobody else could. And I really came to rely on her as the thing that kept me safe. And I needed to be kept safe a lot because I had a lot of anxiety and worries and fears about all sorts of things. Um, and throughout my life, I think those fears and worries have been age appropriate and they've shifted over time. And when I get lost in my fears, I always think to myself, oh, if I could just solve this problem in this moment. But really, it's just part of part of my wiring that I needed to learn to be able to be with myself and to be in discomfort and to handle those things. But I really became super codependent 
on my mom. She was kind of my rock for, for everything. And she really indulged me in trying to comfort me and not let me experience pain and live through it and learn some tools on my own. And so in some respects, I think when I got to program, I felt like I was, my development had been arrested in a certain way as a really young child in terms of coping with life's problems and difficulties. And that's been a lot of my personal work, both in and out of program is um, understanding how to be with myself, um, understanding how to rely on others and get the support of others, but without being so codependent that I actually lose myself in other people, um, how to not hold other people responsible for my problems, all, all pretty, you know, typical stuff for human beings, but for, to go through it can, can often feel hard or impossible at various times. Um, also, important to note that my whole family were overeaters. They were, my sister and my parents were heavy and um, anxious eaters. And um, I have a very distinct memory. It's one of the first things I wrote about in this program in my food memory of being maybe about seven years old and my family at our favorite Chinese restaurant. And my mom remarking to me that I was the only one in the family who stopped eating uh, when they were full. And, you know, I'm not somebody with like a great laser sharp long-term memory, but that memory is crystal clear. So I had my family members um, soothing a lot of the time with food. And the way I was soothed myself, because I did have lots of anxieties and fears from that very early age, was mostly by being in my body. Um, I was really athletic and joyful and expressive and loved to run and be and do competitive sports and non-competitive sports. And um, in a lot of ways, my body was my sanctuary and my treatment for a lot of my fear and anxiety at an early age um, before I started compulsively overeating. And then a series of things happened from um, early to mid to late childhood that really impacted my relationship with my body. Um, at around nine years of age, um, I was uh, sexually abused by a neighbor um, and that um, you know, that was my first experience. I, I didn't really know what was happening at the time. I just knew something was wrong and not right in this relationship. Um, I knew it was wrong enough that I didn't tell my parents, but I didn't, I had no way to process that experience at that age, for sure. That was a real trauma for me that I've been working with ever since. And at 16, when I was in high school, I was diagnosed with type one diabetes. Um, and even though which is a genetic disease, but I don't have it in my family um, and have some real traumatic memories of being hospitalized upon diagnosis and people trying to do their best. But like a, a diabetic volunteer sitting in my hospital room at 16 telling me, you know, that I wouldn't necessarily go blind because of my diabetes. And um, I knew nothing about the disease at the time. I didn't have any friends with it. 
It wasn't quite the epidemic it is today. And that just spiraled me into a lot of deep fear as well. And then the last sort of big trauma to my body was at around 19 or 20, I had a series of sinus infections that I ended up unfortunately treating over a whole year with many different antibiotics, um, just for a year, constantly switching, trying to get a handle on it before I eventually had surgery. But that year of antibiotics really kind of destroyed my gut. And it's still to this day, my gut is pretty messed up. Um, and all those three things, the sexual abuse, the diabetes, the antibiotics, um, and the gut problems just really made me lose that connection. So my body had been sort of a place, a safe space for me to be in and a, and a really joyful place to be in. And I really just started disconnecting with my body um, as a result of those different kinds of traumas. And um, I think I, for the next you know 20 years, I oftentimes felt like my head and my body were kind of detached from one another. And I was kind of only aware of my head and lost in my thoughts. And just, and those thoughts were um, mostly really harsh about how inadequate I was or insecure I was um, and wanting approval of others, as I've mentioned. Um, and basically I wanted to do anything to not be in that headspace. So I was kind of detached from my body and my headspace was real harsh and very negative and food, I had always had a sweet tooth, but food really became my sanctuary for how I could get relief from, and I, and yes, it was obviously temporary relief, but boy, it really was effective to create relief from the space that I was in, in the day to day. And I would eat, um, to celebrate, like when I was in a good mood, when something good happened, I would eat when I was sad to make myself feel better, I would eat when I was bored so that I would have something to do. I just needed to be eating. Thanks, Jack. Um, to feel okay in the world and pretty garden variety overeater in terms of what I did and what I ate. I don't really need to get into too much of the specifics, um, but it's, you know, it was, um, at its worst, just all day long, starting with breakfast, lunch, dinner, and all the way in between. There really was no breakfast, lunch, and dinner at its worst because I would just be eating various forms, mostly of sugar, um, throughout the day. And, you know, this was especially harmful because I had diabetes and it was really hard to control my diabetes along with the food. And for so long, I used diabetes as an excuse for why I couldn't get my eating under control. So I knew something was wrong with how I ate and, and felt like something was really wrong with me. And I ended up finding out about St. John's, I think on my own, and went to it um, a long time ago, about 15 years ago. And I came to maybe five meetings, the room was huge at that time. And it really resonated deeply i felt immediately like i belonged and my story was being told by others um but i stopped going after a few meetings um, because i just i wanted to come in and get thin and then be able to eat sugar again and i got enough 
in those early days to, um, I would have periods that my, my overeating and my dieting um, and my cycles were very cyclical. And I would, especially because my work is cyclical too, and has very stressful periods and then long down periods. And I would go through um, over a decade of work seasons where I would gain um, 20 to 30 pounds and then I would lose most of it, but not all of it through that time. And then finally I stopped losing the weight altogether when I got really depressed, but that's sort of like what my intro to OA was. I came in, I felt like I got what I needed. I went on a long stretch of like four or five months of super tight eating a diet. I lost the weight. And then of course I started eating again when my life got stressful and gained all the weight back and more. And then I don't actually know the time, but maybe eight years ago, I want to say something around then I came back to St. John's um, for good and haven't stopped coming back and hope to be in these rooms for the rest of my life. Um, just because I've been talking about my story for a long time, I want to get to tradition eight. Um, Overeaters Anonymous should remain forever non-professional, but our service centers may employ special workers. For years, there was some sort of um, hilarious association I had with the, the second part of this. Our service centers may employ special workers of a commercial when I was a kid about like Mutual of Omaha or like send off your mailing to Pueblo, Colorado. I just watched these commercials and I just was like, our service centers may employ special workers. I was so like, what the heck does that mean? Um, it's such weird language. And as is often the case when I'm left to my own devices and my own mind, I think I was kind of focusing on, um, that is an important part of this tool, but I really think having spent more time with um, Tradition 8, that to me, what resonates now mostly is the first part of the tradition, Overeaters Anonymous should remain forever non-professional. And to me, this step is about a lot of things. Partly it's about service. Um, in the chapter, there were a couple sentences that stood out to me. Um, one is that OA is built upon a foundation of sharing our experience, strength, and hope, one member to another with no strings attached. The spirit of no strings attached, caring and sharing is one of the greatest strengths we have to offer as a fellowship, for it carries with it a unique healing power. And that um, resonates as deeply meaningful and true in my experience. And the chapter, I really appreciate that it talks in a couple different places about therapy and how it's different than therapy and the role of therapy, because therapy has been a big part of my own um, recovery story. Um, but it is different. It's like when the when the profit motive is taken out the way we have in OA, it has really helped me as somebody who like part of my anxiety and fearfulness <clears throat> is a lack of trust, a lack of trust in myself and in others. <clears throat> and it manifests in a lot of judgment, uh, first and foremost of myself, but also my of others. Thank you, Jack. Um, and um, the non-professional nature of OA has slowly allowed me to trust. And I wish it would have been a faster process for me, but by 
just coming back over and over to um, meetings and I go to, um, you know, depending on the time of year, I go to two to four meetings a week and the phone calls, um, you know, no one, no one is in this, no one's getting paid for this. I don't have to question anyone's motives for being in the room. And I know that nobody would choose to spend all this time in these rooms unless they too had this problem and we're trying to work on on this disease that we all share so there is to me like a real alchemy in the um, non-professional nature of our fellowship and i missed that in this tradition for all these years by kind of focusing on the wrong thing. And now I kind of, I appreciate the latter sentiment too. our service centers may employ special workers just for the practicality. Like it, it can be kind of a shit show to have a completely non-professional giant worldwide organization um, that is strictly run by volunteers. And so in order to um, get stuff done at the scale that OA operates at, um, we need to pay some people to do stuff. And so um, as somebody who has pretty good executive functioning and likes to be organized and likes things to run smoothly, um, I'm also appreciative of that part of it. But to me, like the heart of the matter is this, the principles of non-professionalism. And they really are principles I keep coming back to because they're they're hard for me. Um, and they're about, um, I think the main ones for me are not fixing. Um, and I get to practice that as a sponsor in OA. And I'm grateful every time I meet with my sponsee that it is a chance for me to share my experience, strength, and hope and not um, fix anyone else. And it's carried over into other parts of my life. I don't have to fix my children in the way that um, I felt like I needed to be fixed as a child and in my work life, et cetera. So not fixing, but sharing and, um, and not being an expert um, is it's a relief. You know, I, I hate this kind of public speaking. It makes me really nervous. It really brings up a lot of feelings of inadequacy. What do I have to share? Um, or how will I be perceived by others? Those things I don't think will ever go away completely. But when I realize that there are like no experts in this program, oh despite, uh, thank you, despite how long we've all been in it, that we're all, you know, um, trudging the road of happy destiny together. And I like to think of, um, song lyrics that are like walk beside me not ahead of me or behind me there's a there's a song a jewish song that i love to sing with that lyric and that's what i think about how we're doing this program all together so tradition eight which was um i kind of wrinkled my nose at for a long time is actually really a beautiful tradition and a big part of how i like to work my program and i guess i'll just finish with a tiny bit of what it's like now i um I do uh, my food plan. I have a sponsor who I'm extremely grateful for that connection and sharing of wisdom. Um, and 
Um, and I've learned that despite the fact that my body, as I turn 50 in a few months and have had diabetes for 33 years and have hip surgery coming up and stomach problems, all these things uh, that I wish were different about my body. What I've learned in this, partly through this program is that my spirituality can often be accessed through connection to this body. And so there's part of me that's like, my body is broken and I lost that connection, which was so important to me as a young person. And my recovery is a lot about breath and connecting through movement by listening to music and really getting in touch with my body, that both things can be true, that I wish it were different, but that I can still find my center and my spirituality and my core a lot of times by connecting with my my physical body. And I'm so grateful um, to all of you and this program and living it one day at a time and can't wait to hear your shares today. Thank you all.